Does government surveillance on your personal communication make you feel more or less safe? Less safe. It's invasion of privacy. I think government's sticking their nose into too many people's business right now. So how does government surveillance on your personal communication make you feel more safe or less safe? I gotta think about that one. Um, can I answer both? Um, I think both, because I feel like, especially what's going on right now, like having like location services on, it's like it can be helpful, but at the same time, I feel like it's a private device for the most part. So I feel like it goes both ways. Uh, so the question is, does government surveillance on your personal conversations make you feel more safe or less safe? Less safe. And how come? Um, the right to privacy is inherent in the Constitution, and we should follow that. And um, the next question is, um, are you familiar with the Patriot Act? Yes, I am. Uh, and what do you know about it? Well, I know after 9-11, it was designed to give the U.S. government the ability to go after terrorism. And quite frankly, it was supposed to have legal reviews by judges to make sure that they were doing these warrantless searches right, and they're not. And so it should be curtailed. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our first episode of the Tracked and Trace podcast. We're looking at surveillance and asking the question, is it worth it? Is it working? I'm Natasha T. Miller, Community Engagement Manager with Michigan State Museum's Science Gallery. And I'm Antoine Scott, Head of Programming for Science Gallery at MSU and co-curator of the exhibition Tracked and Traced. And today we will be discussing a really critical moment in U.S. history, and that's the attacks that happened on September 11th. It was the beginning of a new era, and it really changed the way that surveillance has been implemented and deployed in the U.S. And for me, I can't ever forget what 9-11 was. I was a ninth grader in U.S. history class at 9 a.m. in the morning, and our principal runs into the room saying that we have to come on the TV. And for me, it was my first time seeing anything like that or even believing something like that could happen here on U.S. soil. And it really changed the way I thought about my safety day to day and really what it meant to be an American at that time. What about you? I would say that 9-11 pretty much changed the trajectory of, of my life. I was uh, in the 12th grade when it happened, and I remember just looking at the news and asking myself, once we figured out that it was an attack on American soil, uh, I was asking myself the question of, how do you become more of a patriot? How do you do more for your country? And I actually joined the military. So the year I left high school, I went to the military and decided that that would be my contribution to patriotism. Um, and then as I learned more and more about, you know, why we were there, I started to to feel like maybe I had just been duped a little bit, you know? Um, maybe there was a little more education that needed to be done on my part to understand why we were having this war and why I was joining, not just on foreign soil, but also on American soil. Well, don't fault yourself for that. There were a lot of moving parts and things were happening really quickly as it relates to the development of policy and the way that the U.S. responded to the war Absolutely. and the war on terrorism. 
Later on, we'll hear from Spencer Ackerman, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of the new book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. He's going to talk to us about the lasting impact that the Patriot Act had on America. But first, we take a closer look at the immediate aftermath of the September 11th attacks, where Muslim Americans and or people of Middle Eastern or Southeast Asian descent were targeted by intelligence agencies and how they found themselves on the terrorist watch list. Nargis Rahman has the story. It's been 20 years since the 9-11 attacks. Though two decades have passed, many Americans still remember 9-11 like it was yesterday. But for 3 million American Muslims, that remembrance comes with an added layer of trauma, grieving the loss of fellow Americans, while also being blamed for the attacks. Fatima Salman has lived in Michigan most of her life. She heard the news on her way to work. She was a teacher at a private Islamic school at the time. And I heard this terrifying analysis, like really scary. This is WNYC AMA 20 and online at WNYC.org. It's 8.51. Good morning. I'm Mark Hyland. As we told you just moments ago, there has been some sort of an incident at the World Trade Center and it involves an apparent accident involving an airplane of some type. We do not have any word whatsoever yet as to how many casualties, if any, have occurred in what appears to have been a tremendous impact involving an airliner striking the upper floors of the northern tower of the World Trade Center. On the radio, somebody's talking about this very ominous thing that was happening. And I remember thinking, what in the world is going on? All right, we are getting a a, a lot of different sketchy reports. We do have an eyewitness report that a plane indeed crashed into the northern tower of the World Trade Center. We are getting a second report now that there has apparently been a second airliner that has crashed into the second tower, the southern tower of the World Trade Center. We are not sure what the source was of the third explosion. Again, this is in lower Manhattan at the World Trade Center. The school jumped into action, calling the police to provide security and asking parents to pick up their kids immediately. She says as the day unfolded, everyone was glued to the TV. It wasn't just worrying about our country or worrying that this attack happened to our country, but it was also the worry of what's going to happen to us as a community in America. Later that day, President George W. Bush addressed the nation. Today, our fellow citizens... Our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. The search is underway for those who are behind these evil acts. I've directed the full resources of our intelligence and law enforcement communities to find those responsible and to bring them to justice. We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. Security was ramped up at Muslim institutions like schools and mosques. The Patriot Act was passed 45 days after the attacks, providing a legal justification for wiretapping and acquiring evidence without proving probable cause, as would otherwise be required under the Fourth Amendment. The phrase, see something, say something, was echoed around the country, and a new terror alert system was created, fueling the public's fear and paranoia. Islamophobia reached an unprecedented level. Wearing a hijab, speaking Arabic, sitting on the bus, being Muslim in public suddenly felt a lot less safe, and traveling while Muslim could make you a target for interrogation. 
On November 26, 2001, the U.S. Department of Justice sent out letters to 5,000 Arab or Muslim men living in Dearborn, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit that has the highest concentration of Arab Americans in the U.S. The final paragraph of the letter reads as follows. Your name was brought to our attention because, among other things, you came to Michigan on a visa from a country where there are groups that support, advocate, or finance international terrorism. We have no reason to believe that you are in any way associated with terrorist activities. Nevertheless, you may know something that may seem irrelevant to you, but which may help us piece together this puzzle. Please contact my office to set up an interview at a location, date, and time that is convenient for you. The letter was later displayed in the Arab American National Museum in Dearborn. And I was like going through that exhibit and I was like, oh my God. That's Fianna Arbab. She remembers her family getting stopped at the U.S.-Canada border several times. But she never realized her family was among thousands who were targeted for surveillance by the U.S. intelligence agencies. And there was a point where all of a sudden, every time my dad tried to cross the border and go into Canada, he would get stopped and interrogated. Despite being a world-renowned scientist who worked for the National Institutes of Health, Arbab's father, Saeed Ali, was still a target of repeated surveillance and harassment. In 2008, while returning home from a trip to Bangladesh, Saeed Ali was detained in New York, missing his connecting flight to Detroit. Ali was ultimately cleared and went on his way but not before asking an immigration officer a question that countless Muslims have asked. Why me? Saeed Ali remembers what the officer told him. Your name. There are a few thousand Sayyid Ali who is in on the list for no-fly list. He's referring to being on the terrorist screening database, also known as the Watch List, a centralized list of suspected or known terrorists created in 2003. It's shared across U.S. intelligence agencies, Thousands of American Muslims, people from Southeast Asia, the Middle East, or people perceived to be Muslims like Sikhs who wore turbans were targeted. This meant being profiled at borders, randomly selected at airports, and in some cases, even detained without cause. All that's needed to be placed on the watch list is a law enforcement agent having, quote-unquote, reasonable suspicion. Back at the airport, Ali asked the officer what he should do to take his name off the list. And the answer was simple. Change your name. So in 2010, I changed my name from Sayyid Arbab Ali to Ali Sayyid Arbab. And you would be surprised after that, nobody stops me at any border or any airport. I was very surprised based on the name, not my profile, not my face, not my fingerprint. They're just arbitrarily stopping me. Being searched, detained, or interrogated is more than just missing flights and being subjected to extra scrutiny. It's humiliating and disruptive. It has a ripple effect on people's lives. Miriam Jakaku is a stay-at-home mother who was stopped and searched on her way to a birthday party. In 2012, she made a wrong turn while visiting family in Michigan and ended up on the bridge to Canada. So when we, we got to the toll, we told her, like, oh, just a mistake, we want to turn around. She said, no problem, take this little paper and turn around and just tell them you made a mistake, you took the wrong exit. Of course, when we did that, they stopped us, pulled us out um, of the car. Um, you know, we were there for hours. U.S. Customs eventually let Jukaku and her family go without an explanation. A few days later, she was stopped again, this time at the airport on her way home to California. 
Jukaku and her infant son were patted down and thoroughly searched, down to the last diaper. I didn't realize what it meant at the time, but I had uh, four S's printed on my um, boarding pass. That stands for Secondary Security Screening Selection. Jukaku was on the selectee and suspected selectee list, allowing the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, to search people and all their belongings. This meant she was on the watch list. She filed a complaint with the Department of Homeland Security Traveler Redress Inquiry Program. Such an inquiry is one of the only ways to find out if you're on the watch list, but you may not always find out why. Years later, in 2016, Jukaku became one of 19 plaintiffs in a lawsuit filed by the Council on American-Islamic Relations, or CARE, Baby Doe v. Peota, against the Department of Homeland Security, FBI, TSA, and the Terrorist Screening Center. It questioned why American Muslims were placed on the terrorist watch list. The youngest plaintiff was seven months old. Civil rights attorney Sharif Akil helped file the CARE lawsuit. He says the United States Bill of Rights was created to ensure people have due process. But people on the watch list are not afforded that right. All of these principles were thrown out of the window after September 11. Uh, The watch list became so abusive that anybody and their mother and their son would end up being on a watch list with no due process, no notice, no opportunity to be heard, including babies. Akil says the backlash against Arabs and Muslims was immediate. Dearborn and other Arab and Muslim communities across the nation became targets of surveillance. The FBI had very little knowledge. Their skill set was lacking with respect to having a foundation and, and, uh, about, uh, about the religion of Islam, about the people that it's supposed to be protecting, which is the Muslim American community. And they, they, didn't even have, um, uh, they didn't even have enough interpreters. Akil says this fostered distrust in the community. Mariam Jukaku agrees. When you see things like that, it, it points to um, major problems in, in what we're doing as a, as a society. They're creating so much fear and paranoia that we think this is necessary. Or just our policies have gone off the deep end in terms of how to keep the public safe. Baby Doe v. Paota was settled in 2017. The judge determined the plaintiffs did not have qualifying special factors and would not be paid any damages. There are several lawsuits like this one, questioning why people face undue burdens while traveling. Some have even been in front of the Supreme Court. In 2015, the Patriot Act was modified and reintroduced as the USA Freedom Act. But in 2020, the bill was not reauthorized by Congress. It's estimated there are still over 1 million people on the watch list, thousands of whom are U.S. citizens and permanent residents. 20 years later, the ripple effects of the 9-11 attacks are still impacting the lives of American Muslims. For them, flying to visit relatives or returning home from abroad will never be the same. I'm Nargis Rahman, WDET News. Celebrate 75 years of public radio in Detroit with WDET. As our spring fundraiser commences, let's unite to support what makes Detroit unique. 75 years of people-powered radio. 
Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap Donate in the mobile app. Now we're going to talk with journalist and author Spencer Ackerman. His reporting on the Edward Snowden leaks and the NSA earned him a Pulitzer Prize in 2014. He's also the author of the new book, Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. Uh, Spencer, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what what you've done and what led you to the type of work that you do and how you got here today? Sure. Thanks very much, Natasha. And thank you to Antoine as well. My name is Spencer Ackerman. I'm a national security reporter for about uh, the last 20 years. And what's that mean in practice? I'm basically someone who's written about the war on terror from a variety of outlets from Iraq, Afghanistan, Guantanamo Bay. And recently I published a book about all of this called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. And currently I produce a newsletter on Substack called Forever Wars, which is where you can find most of my reporting now. So, Spencer... It'll be really important for us to begin to understand how the surveillance of American Muslims uh, immediately following 9-11 became widespread. Also, what were the results of that surveillance? Sure. This is a very broad and deep story. So I'll, I'll try and just sort of give the, the top lines, but... My book is called Reign of Terror because that is how I think we need to understand what happened after 9-11. The unleashing of a punitive, carceral, violent, and sometimes lethal apparatus, not just abroad uh, against an ever-mutating enemy that was identifiably non-white and Muslim, but here at home as well. To give just a couple quick examples, right after 9-11, the FBI, in what is known as the Pent Bomb investigation, pursued uh, a series of roundups, not just in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. area, but up where I am in New York City. And that held a still unknown number of Muslims and people presumed to be Muslim in detention, uh, very often uh, coerced to uh, become informants about things they had no idea about. And when necessary, threatened with uh, deportation, and in many cases actually deported as well. This was a time in which uh, the NYPD remade itself in the image of the CIA and got out of its constraints that had been the result of a lot of um, important uh, civil rights litigation, preventing the NYPD from conducting surveillance on entire communities. They had done this not only against Black neighborhoods, uh, Hispanic neighborhoods um, in New York, but also against protest organizations. And what happened was, through hiring a former senior CIA official who at some points seconded serving CIA officials into the NYPD, went into neighborhoods around Muslim New York. And its goal was not to disrupt necessarily terrorist plots or even expose criminal wrongdoing, but simply to understand surreptitiously 
through undercover agents known as rakers and the informants that they cultivated, whether coerced or paid, to simply let them know what the political attitudes of mosques, businesses, of community centers were. Spencer, we're here to talk about, you know, uh, surveillance and what it's done to a lot of our communities. And we know that 911 had a really, obviously, big role in, in the start of this this kind of big brother surveillance that we're all um, up under now. But we know the Patriot Act ushered in a lot of this. Can you give us some simpler version of what it actually is? Sure. It's a lot of things at once. And that's one of the reasons why it can sometimes be kind of abstract or difficult to describe. But what the Patriot Act is really about is expanding the boundaries of criminal association. Patriot Act has also been used to expand the ways in which the FBI can look at your internet browsing history. Your book speaks a lot about the emotional responses of 9-11, and I wanted to have you explore and explain a little bit more about what those emotional responses looked like in the form of policy and other actions. All of the nativism, the racism, and the violence of American history reemerge in an atmosphere of patriotic vengeance. And this has really devastating consequences, human consequences. I recently went back and read some community leaders' descriptions of how the children in their communities, Muslim children in in Brooklyn, were experiencing the weeks and months after 9-11. And it was with, to not put too fine a point on it, terror. Let's also remember that the war on terror from the start despite the name suggesting that it's agnostic about the causes of terrorism, always from the start excludes white terrorism, which in the United States of America is the oldest, most lethal, and most resilient form of terrorism in American history. It's terrorism that sees itself as fundamentally American, that calls its practitioners patriots. By 2018, I was talking with an FBI official who had very deep experience in post-9-11 counterterrorism investigations. And candidly, this person said that uh, white terrorism and far-right terrorism were the Bureau's lowest counterterrorism priority. All throughout the 9-11 era, White terrorism is allowed not just to continue, but to incubate without ever experiencing the, like remotely experiencing the sort of punitive, carceral, intrusive, and bankrupting measures that Muslim communities, not Muslim terrorist organizations, Muslim communities experienced. I say that to point out that we can see the war on terror for what it is when we see who it excludes. I do want to talk a little bit about how federal funding for research and development impacted the private sector. Like, is there a way that you can help us draw that connection between defense contracting, defense spending, and how the technologies uh, were used in the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. The only people who win the war on terror are the defense contractors. They get 
not just from the wars themselves, but from all of the related material that the government has an appetite to develop, purchase, and field, whole new markets. There isn't a drone market before 9-11. The first wave of drone technology is developed by the CIA and the Air Force, and very quickly, the companies in particular, General Atomics, which is the company that makes American Predator and Reaper drones, the armed drones that we're familiar with now from, you know, throughout the war on terror. That company becomes absolutely crucial to uh, not just the American defense establishment, but in ways both direct and indirect, what is now a global market for lethal drone technology. And of course, you know, subsequent, you know, derivative developments from there means there's also like a civilian drone market for intensely powerful, you know, on the one end down to the low end, you know, drones that you fly to, you know, get a good picture for for your Instagram, stuff like that. And as well, you can also see how once wars wind down, the utility, the necessity for such powerful camera suites and the ability to hoist it, as well as the data retention and analysis requirements for all of the the video and still imagery that all of those cameras collect, when they reduce in war zones, the market for them is in the United States. And the market for them in particular is with cop shops, police department, law enforcement. In 2011, I did a story for Playboy about the Miami-Dade police department becoming uh, the first to be FAA certified in a surveillance drone that was familiar from Iraq and Afghanistan called the T-Hawk, made by a company called Honeywell. That's just one example of how these wars exist from public money, In this case, the United States borrowed money for war rather than raise taxes on the wealthy. And from our public budgets, there is a tremendous wealth transfer to the defense sector to develop these technologies that then the government, through the Department of Homeland Security, subsidizes these police departments so they can have their budgets filled up in order to purchase these things. So this is a market for repression and in some cases violence that is entirely state generated, that is dependent upon and symbiotic with both the war on terror and the broader economic realities that the war on terror reflects. And to get like a final measure of how this works, during the Black Lives Matter uprisings of the summer of 2020, the Department of Homeland Security flew surveillance drones over 15 American cities. All of this has a very distinct beginning in the 9-11 era. Next time, we take a close look at the Detroit Police Department's surveillance program, Project Greenlight. That does it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with new episodes every two weeks. Tracked and Traced is hosted by Antoine Scott and Natasha T. Miller. Today's episode was produced by David Lyons. 
with reporting from Nargis Rahman and editing by David Lyons, David Weinberg, and Russ McNamara, with Vox Pops from the Science Gallery Mediator Team, Harrison Adams, Ali Amel Avila Sanchez, Shanmin Sultana, and Caroline White with mixing, mastering, and original music by Sam Bobian. Tracked and Traced is a collaboration between MSU's Science Gallery and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, with generous support from the Pulitzer Center, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, and MSU FCU.